0: Why is seminary so expensive? No expense, no expense. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are committed to the reform of theological education toward meeting the needs of churches across the globe. Men of God cannot serve their churches well if they are burdened with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans from seminary. Tens of thousands of dollars. At CBTS, you can receive a robust theological education for nearly four times less than other institutions. To find out more about how you can receive an accredited theological degree at a cost that you can afford, visit cbtseminary.org. You've tuned in to the podcast of the Man of God Network. This is a narrated Puritan. This treatise on indwelling sin, the remaining chapters of it can be found. at the narrated Puritan on sermonaudio.com as well as other narrations. A treatise on indwelling sin by John Owen. The power of sin demonstrated by the effects it has had in the lives of professing Christians. First, in actual sense, secondly, in habitual declension and backsliding, we now proceed to other evidences of that sad truth which we are demonstrating, but haven't passed through the main part of our work. I will be more brief in managing the arguments that remain. What may then be fixed on in this next place is the demonstration which this law of sin is given in all ages, of its power and efficacy, by the woeful fruits that it has brought forth, even in believers themselves. Now these fruits are of two sorts. One, the great actual eruptions of sin in their lives. Two, their habitual declensions from the frame, state, and condition of obedience and communion with God, which they had obtained. Both of these, by the rule of James unfolded before, are to be laid to the account of this law of sin. They belong to the fourth head of its progress and both are convincing evidences of its power and efficacy. Consider the fearful eruptions of actual sin that have been in the lives of believers, and we will find our position evidenced. If I were to go through at large with this consideration, I must recount all the sad and scandalous feelings of the saints that are left on record in the Holy Scripture, but their particulars are known to all, so I will not need to mention them nor the many aggravations that are attended with in their circumstances. Only a few things may be remarked that tend to render our present consideration of them useful, such as number one, most of these professing Christians, compared to other men, were not the lowest form or ordinary sort of believers, but men who had a particular eminence on account of walking with God in their generation. Such were Noah, Lot, David, Hezekiah, and others, they were not men of an ordinary size, but higher than their brethren, head and shoulders above them in their profession, and indeed in real holiness. Surely it must have had a mighty efficacy, if it could hurry such giants in the ways of God into such abominable sins as they fell into. An ordinary engine could never turn them away from the course of their obedience. It was a poison that no athletic constitution of spiritual health, no antidote, could withstand. Number two, and these very men did not fall into their greatest sins at the beginning of their profession, when they had but little experience of the goodness of God, of the sweetness and pleasantness of obedience, of the power and craft of sin, of its impulsion, solicitations, and surprisals, But after a long course of walking with God and after acquaintance with all these things together with innumerable motives for watchfulness, Noah, according to the lives of men in those days of the world, had walked uprightly with God some hundreds of years before he was so surprised as he was. In Genesis 9, righteous lot seems to have been towards the end of his days before he defiled himself with the abominations recorded. David, in a short life had as much experience of grace and sin and as much close spiritual communion with God as any of the sons of men ever had before he was thrown to the ground by this law of sin. So was it with Hezekiah in his degree, which was not the least, now to attack such persons, so well acquainted with its power and deceit, so armed and provided against, who had been conquerors over it for so many years, and to prevail against them argues for a power and efficacy too mighty for anything but the spirit of the almighty to withstand who can look to have a greater stock of inherent grace than those men had to have more experience of god and the excellence of his ways to sweetness of his love and of communion with him than they had who is either better acquit to oppose sin with or more obligation to do so than they did. And yet, we see how fearfully they were propelled against, as if God had permitted their falls on purpose, so that we might learn to be wary of this powerful enemy. All of them fell when they had newly received great and stupendous mercies from the hand of God. that should have been a strong obligation to diligence and watchfulness and close obedience. Noah had only newly come out of the world of waters, in which he saw the ungodly world perishing for their sins, and he himself was preserved by that astonishing miracle which all ages must admire, while the world's desolation was an hourly remembrance to him of his strange preservation. By the immediate care and hand of God, he falls into drunkenness. Lot had newly seen what everyone who thinks about cannot help but tremble at. He saw, as someone said, hell coming out of heaven upon unclean sinners. Except for the cross of Christ, it was the greatest evidence that God and his providence ever gave of the judgment to come. Lot saw himself and his children delivered by the special care and miraculous hand of God. And yet, while these strange mercies were fresh upon him, he fell into drunkenness and incest. David was delivered out of all of his troubles and had the necks of his enemies round about given to him, and yet he makes use of his peace from a world of trials and troubles to contrive murder and adultery. It was immediately after Hezekiah's great miraculous deliverance that he falls into his carnal pride and boasting. I say... Their falls in such seasons seems to be permitted on purpose to instruct us all in the truth that we have in hand so that no persons at no times with whatever furnishings of grace they may have can promise themselves security from sin's prevalence in any other way than by keeping close constantly to him who has supplies to give out that are above its reach and efficacy. I think this should make us look around us are we better than noah who had that testimony from god that he was a perfect man in his generations and walked with god are we better than lot whose righteous soul was vexed with the evil deeds of ungodly men and is therefore commended by the holy ghost are we more holy wise and watchful than david who had obtained this testimony that he was a man after god's own heart or are we better than hezekiah who appealed to God himself that he had served him uprightly and with a perfect heart. Yet, we see what prevalence this law of sin worked in and over those men. There is no end of like examples. They are all set up as buoys to reveal to us the sands, the shells, the rocks, upon which they made their shipwreck, to their hazard, danger, loss, Yes, and would have done so to their ruin if God had not been pleased in his faithfulness to graciously prevent it. This is the first part of this evidence of the power of sin from its effects in the lives of believers. Number two, it manifests its power in habitual declension from sin and holiness from the frame, state, and condition of obedience and communion with God to which they had attained, and which are found in many believers. Promises of growth and improvement are many and precious. The means are excellent and effectual. The benefits are great and unspeakable. And yet it often falls out that instead of these, decays and declensions are found in professors, indeed, in and upon many of the saints of God. Now, whereas this must principally and chiefly be from the strength and efficacy of indwelling sin, and therefore a great evidence of it, I will evince first that the observation itself is true. Namely, that some of the saints themselves oftentimes decline from that growth and improvement in faith, grace, and holiness, which might be justly expected from them. Number two, then I will show that the cause of this evil lies in what we are treating. Number three, and after, it will be declared that this is the cause of total apostasy and unsound professors. But this is the greater work which we have in hand. Prevailing upon true believers to a sinful declension and gradual apostasy takes more strength and efficacy than prevailing upon unsound professors to total apostasy. Just as a wind which blows down a dead tree with no root in the ground will scarcely shake or bend a living well-rooted tree, but this it will do. Mention is made in the scripture of the first ways of David, and they are committed above his latter ways, Second Chronicles 17, verse 3. The last ways, even of David, were tainted with the power of indwelling sin. Though we have mentioned only of the actual eruption of sin? Yet that uncleanness and pride which was working in him and numbering the people were certainly rooted in a declension from his first frame. Second Samuel twenty four ten. Those rushes did not grow without mire. David would not have done so in his younger days when he followed God in the wilderness of temptations and trials, full of faith, love, humility, brokenness of heart, zeal, tender affection for all the ordinances of God, all of which were imminent in him, but his strength is impaired by the efficacy and deceitfulness of sin. His locks were cut, Judges 16 verse 17, and he becomes a prey to vile lusts, in temptations, we have a notable instance in the Revelation. In most of the churches that our Saviour awakens to consider their condition, we may single out one of them. There were many good things in the Church of Ephesus, Revelation 2 verses 2 and 3, for which it is greatly commended. Yet it is charged with a decay, a declension, a gradual falling off, an apostasy. Revelation 2 verses 4 and 5 You have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. And do the first works. There was a decay. Both inward in the frame of the heart. as to faith and love. And outward. Is to obedience and works. In comparison to what they had formerly. By the testimony of Christ himself. The same thing might also be shown concerning the rest of those churches with only one or two of them accepted. Five of them are charged with decays and declensions. Hence, there is mention in the scripture of the kindness of youth, of the love of espousals, with great commendation, Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3, of our first faith, First Timothy five twelve, of the beginning of our confidence, Hebrew three fourteen, and cautions are given that we do not lose the things that we have worked. Second John 1 verse 8 But what need do we have to look back or search for instances to confirm the truth of this observation? Habitual spiritual declension from first engagements to God from the first attainments of communion with God from the first strictness and duties of obedience is ordinary and common among professors of Christ. To this purpose we might take a general view of the professors in these nations among whom the lot of the best of us will be found to fall in part or in whole in some thing or in all things, and we might be plentifully convinced of the truth of this observation. Is there zeal for God as warm, living, vigorous, effectual, or solicitous, as it was upon first giving themselves to God? Or rather, is there not a common, slight, selfish frame of spirit, it has come in its place upon most professors. Iniquity is abounded, and their love has grown cold. Was it not of old a burden to their spirits to hear the name and ways and worship of God blasphemed and profaned? Could they not have said with the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 136, Rivers of waters run down our eyes, because men do not keep your law. Were not their souls solicitous about the interests of Christ and the world? like Eli's interest about the ark. 1 Samuel 4 verse 13 Did they not contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, and every parcel of it, especially those in which the grace of God and the glory of the gospel was especially concerned? Did they not labor to judge and condemn the world by a holy and separate conduct? And do most professors now abide in this frame? Have they grown and made improvement in it? Or is there not a coldness and indifference that has grown on the spirits of many in the thing? Indeed, do not many despise all these things, and look at their own former zeal as folly? May we not see many, formerly esteemed in their ways of profession, who have daily become a scorn and reproach through their miscarriages, and justly so, to the men of the world Is it not with them as it was of old with the daughters of Zion in Isaiah 3, verse 24, when God judged them for their sins and wantonness? Has not the world and self utterly ruined their profession? Are they not without regard for the things in which they formally declared a singular concern? Yes, have not some. Partly on one pretense, partly on another come to an open enmity toward and hatred of the ways of God. They please them no more, but are evil in their eyes, but not to mention such open apostates any further, whose hypocrisy the Lord Jesus Christ will shortly judge. How is it with the best? Have not almost all men grown cold and slack as to these things? Are they not less concerned in them than they were formerly, Have they not grown weary and selfish in their religion? And so things are indifferent at home, and they scarcely care how they go abroad in the world. At least do they not prefer their ease, credit, safety, and secular advantages before these things? This is a frame of mind that Christ abhors, and he declares that those in whom it prevails are none of his. Some indeed seem to retain a good zeal for truth, but in what they make the fairest appearance, and that they will be found to be most abominable, to cry out against errors, not for truth, but for party's sake, and interest's sake, let a man be in their party, and promote their interest, however corrupt his judgment may be, and he is embraced, and it may be even admired, this is not zeal for God, but for a man's self, it is not the zeal of your house has eaten me up, but master, Forbid them, because they do not follow with us. It would doubtless be better for men never to pretend to any zeal at all, than to substitute such wrathful selfishness in its place. Number two, it's men's delight in the ordinances and worship of God the same as in former days. Did they find the same sweetness and relish in them as they did of old? How precious a word has been to them formerly. Would joy and delight they had in attendance to it. How they would have run and gone to partake of it, wherever it was dispensed in its power and purity, any evidence and demonstration of the Spirit. Did they not call the Sabbath their delight? And was not its approach a real joy to their souls? Did they not long after the converse and communion of saints? And could they not undergo manifold perils to attain it? And does his frame still abide upon them? Are there not decays and spiritual declensions to be found among them? May it not be said gray hairs are here and there upon them, and they do not perceive it. Hosea 7 verse 9. Yes, are not men ready to say with those of old, What a weariness this is. Malachi 1 verse 13. It is even a burden and a weariness to be tied to the observation of all these ordinances. What need do we have to be at all so strict in the observation of the Sabbath? What need do we have to hear so often? What need is there for this distinction in hearing? Insensibly, a great disrespect has fallen upon many professors, yes, even a contempt for the pleasant and excellent ways of Christ and his gospel. Number three. May not the same conviction be further carried on by an inquiry into the universal course of obedience and the performance of duties that men have been engaged in? Is there the same conscientious tenderness against sinning, abiding in many, as it did in days of old? The same exact performance of private duties, the same love toward the brethren, the same readiness for the cross of Christ, the same humility of mind and spirit, the same self-denial, the steam of men's lusts with which the air is tainted will not allow us so to say. We need then go no further than this wretched generation in which we live to evince the truth of the observation laid down. It's a foundation of the instance insisted on. May the Lord grant repentance before it is too late. Now, all these declensions all these spiritual decays that are found in some professors—they all proceed from this root and cause. They are all of the product of indwelling sin, and all events the exceeding power and efficacy of it. For the proof of this, I will need to go further than the general rule we have already considered out of James, namely that lust, or indwelling sin, is the cause of all actual sin and all habitual spiritual declension in believers. This is what the apostle intends to teach. In declaring that place, I will therefore handle these two things. First, show that this evinces a great efficacy and power in sin. And secondly, declare the ways and means by which it brings forth or brings about this cursed effect, all in design of our general end in calling upon and cautioning believers to avoid it and to oppose it, it appears to be a work of great power and efficacy from the provision that is made against it, and yet which it prevails over. There is plentiful provision made in the covenant of grace, not only to prevent spiritual declensions and decays in believers, but also further continual carrying on towards perfection, such as first the word itself, and all the ordinances of the gospel, are appointed and given to us for this end, Ephesians four eleven to 15 that which is the end of giving gospel officers to the church, is the end also of giving all the ordinances to be administered by them, for they are given for the work of the ministry, that is, for the administration of the ordinances of the gospel. Now, what is or what are these ends? They are all for preventing decays and declensions in the saints, all of them for carrying them on to perfection. So it is said in verse 12, In general, it is for perfecting the saints, carrying on the work of grace in them, and the work of holiness and obedience by them, or it is for edifying the body of Christ, through building up in an increase of faith and love, even of every true member of the mystical body. But how far are they thus appointed to carry them on, thus to build them up, Does it have bounds fixed to its work? Does it carry them only so far and then leave them? No, says the apostle in Ephesians 4, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the dispensation of the word of the gospel and the ordinances of it It's designed for our help, assistance, and furtherance. Until the whole work of faith and obedience is consummate, it is appointed to perfect and complete that faith, knowledge, and growth, and grace, and holiness, which is allotted to us in this world. But what and if oppositions and temptations lie in the way? Satan and his instruments working with great subtlety and deceit. Why verse 14 says that these ordinances are designed for our safeguarding and deliverance from all their attempts and assaults so that being preserved in the use of them or speaking the truth in love. We may grow up to him in all things who is ahead. Even Christ Jesus. This in general the use of all gospel ordinances is the chief and main end for which they were given and appointed by God. Namely to preserve believers from all decays of faith and obedience, and to carry them on still towards perfection. These are means which God, the good husbandman, makes use of to cause a vine to thrive and bring forth fruit. And I could also manifest that they are the special end of them distinctly, briefly, the word is milk and strong meat for nourishing and strengthening all sorts and all degrees of believers. It has both seed and water in it, and fertilizer with it, to make them fruitful. The ordinance of the supper is appointed on purpose to strengthen our faith in the remembrance of the death of the Lord, and in the exercise of love towards one another. The communion of the saints is for edifying each other in faith, love, and obedience. Number two, there's something which adds weight to this consideration. God does not allow us to be unmindful of this assistance he has afforded us, but is continually calling on us to make use of the means appointed to attain the end proposed. He shows him to us, just as the angel showed the water spring to Hagar. His commands, exhortations, promises, and threatenings are multiplied to this purpose. You can see them summed up in Hebrews 2 verse 1. He is continually saying to us, Why will you starve? Why will you wither and decay? Come to the pastures provided for you, and your soul shall live. If we see a lamb run from the fold into the wilderness, we are not surprised if it is torn and rent by wild beasts. If we see a sheep leaving its green pastures and water courses to abide in dry hees, We do not consider it a marvel, nor inquire further if we see them lean and ready to perish. But if we find lambs wounded in the fold, we wonder at the boldness and rage of the beasts of prey that dare to attack them there. If we see sheep pining in full pastures, we judge that they are diseased and unsound. It is indeed no marvel that poor creatures who forsake their own mercies and run away from the pastor and fold of Christ and his ordinances are torn and rent with a various lusts and pine away with hunger and famine, but to see men living under and enjoying all the means of spiritual thriving, and yet for them to decay spiritually and not be fat and flourishing, but rather pine and wither daily. This argues for some secret powerful distemper whose poisonous and noxious qualities hinders the virtue and efficacy of the means they enjoy. This, its indwelling sin, it is so terrifically powerful, so effectually poisonous, that it can bring leanness on the souls of men in the midst of all precious means of growth and flourishing. It may well make us tremble to see men living under and in the use of the means of the gospel, preaching, praying, the administration of the sacraments. And yet, every day they grow colder than others in their zeal for God, to grow more selfish and worldly, and even habitually decline, as to the degrees of holiness which they had attained to. Number three, together with the dispensation of the outward means of spiritual growth or improvement, There are also supplies of grace continually afforded to saints from their head. Christ, he is the head of all the saints, and he is a living head, and such a living head that he tells us that because he lives, we all shall shall live. John 14 verse 19 He communicates spiritual life to all that are his, In him is a fountain of our life, which is therefore said to be hidden with him in God. Colossians 3 verse 3, and he gives his life to his saints by quickening them by his spirit. Romans 8 verse 11, and he continues giving it to them by the supplies of living grace which he communicates to them. From these two, his quickening of us, and his continually giving out supplies of life to us, he is said to live in us. Colossians 2 verse 20, I live, yet... Not I, but Christ lives in me, to spiritual life which I have is not mine own. It was not adduced from myself, nor is it maintained by myself, but it is merely and solely the work of Christ, so that it is not I that live, but he lives in me, The whole of my life being from him alone. Nor does this living head communicate only a bare life to believers, that they should merely live and no more, a poor, weak, dying spiritual life, as it were. But he gives out sufficiently to afford them a strong, vigorous, thriving, flourishing life. John 10 verse 10. He comes not only that his sheep may have life, but that they may have it more abundantly. That is, in a plentiful manner. So they may flourish, be fat and fruitful. Thus is it with the whole body of Christ. And every member of it. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, that we should grow up into him in all things which is a head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, makes increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. The end of all communications of grace and supplies of life from this living and blessed head, is the increase of the whole body and every member of it in the edifying of itself and love. His treasures of grace are unsearchable. His stores are inexhaustible. His life, the fountain of ours, is full and eternal. The heart is bounteous and large. His hand is open and liberal so that there is no doubt that he abundantly communicates to all his saints supplies of grace for their increase in holiness. Why then is it that they do not all flourish and thrive accordingly? As you may see, it oftentimes happens in a natural body. So it is here. Even though the seat and rise of the blood and spirits and head and heart are excellently good and sound, yet there may be a withering member in the body. Something intercepts the influence of life to it, so that even though the heart and head perform their office, and giving of supplies no less to that member than they do to any other member, yet the total effect produces merely to keep it from utterly perishing. It grows weak. It decays every day. The withering and decaying of any member in Christ's mystical body is not for lack of his communication of grace for an abundant life, but from the powerful interception that is made of its efficacy by the interposition and opposition of indwelling sin. This is why it is that where lust grows strong, a great deal of grace will only keep the soul alive and not give it any imminence and fruitfulness at all. Oftentimes, Christ gives very much grace where not many of its effects appear. It spends its strength and power in withstanding the continual assaults of violent corruptions and lusts. So that it cannot put forth its proper virtue towards further fruitfulness it is like a virtuous medicine that is fit both to check vicious and noxious diseases and to comfort refresh and strengthen our nature if the evil disease is strong and greatly prevailing the medicine spends its whole strength and virtue in subduing and correcting it thus contributing much less to the relief of our nature than it would do if it had not met with such opposition So is it with thy solve and healing grace which we have abundantly from the wings of the Son of Righteousness. It is oftentimes forced to exert its virtue to oppose and to contend against, and in some measure subdue prevailing lusts and corruptions. This is why the soul does not receive that strengthening for duties and fruitfulness which it might otherwise receive from such grace. How sound, healthy and flourishing, how fruitful and exemplary in holiness, by many a soul be, and with the grace continually communicated to it from Christ. But by reason of the power of indwelling sin, the soul may not be dead, but it is weak, withering, and useless. And this, if anything, is a notable evidence of the efficacy of indwelling sin, that it is able to put such a stop and check to the mighty and effectual power of grace so that notwithstanding the blessed and continual supplies that we receive from our spiritual head, many believers yet decline and decay and do it habitually compared to what they attain to, their last ways not corresponding to their first ways. This makes a vineyard and a very fruitful hill produce so many wild grapes and make so many trees barren and fertile lands, Isaiah 10 verse 18 besides the continual supplies of grace that are constantly communicated to believers according to the tenure of the covenant which keeps them so that they thirst no more that is, to total indigence there is also a readiness in the Lord Christ to yield particular help to his souls as their occasions require the apostle tells us that he is a merciful high priest an able, that is ready, prepared and willing to help those who are tempted hebrews 2 verse 18 and on that account we are invited to come with boldness to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need that is grace that is sufficient timely and suitable to any special trial or temptation that we may be exercised with our merciful high priest is ready to give out this special timely grace over and above those constant communications of supplies of the spirit which we mentioned before Besides the number of failing springs of ordinary covenant grace, he has also particular refreshing showers for times of drought. And this is exceedingly to the advantage of the saints for their preservation and growth in grace. And very many more of like nature may be added. But now I say, notwithstanding all these, and the remainder of like importance, such as the power and efficacy of indwelling sin, so great, is this deceitfulness and restlessness, so many are its wiles and temptations, that it often occurs that many believers, for whose growth and improvement all this provision is made, yet go backward, and decline, as was shown, even as to their course of walking with God. Samson's great strength fully evidenced itself when he broke seven new strands, and seven new cords, with which he was bound, like burning twine and thread. The noxious disease in the body which is so stubborn that no use of the most sovereign remedies can prevail against it ought to be regarded, such as this indwelling sin. If it is not washed over, it breaks all the cords made to bind it. It blunts the instruments appointed to root it up. It resists all healing medicines, however sovereign and it is therefore assuredly of exceeding efficacy. Besides this, believers have innumerable obligations on them from the love of God, from the command of God to grow in grace, to press forward towards perfection, because they have abundant means provided for them to do so. And doing so is a matter of the greatest advantage, profit, sweetness, and contentment to them in the world. It is a burden, the trouble of their souls, that they do not so do, that they are not more holy, more zealous, useful, or fruitful, that they do not desire it above life itself. They know it is their duty to watch against this enemy, to fight against it, to pray against it. And so they do. They more desire this enemy's destruction than the enjoyment of this entire world and all it can afford them. And yet, notwithstanding all this, such as a subtlety and fraud and violence and fury and urgency, and importunity of this adversary that it frequently prevails to bring them into the woeful condition mentioned. This is why it is with believers sometimes that it is with men in some places at sea. It may be that they have a good and fair of wind all night long. They ply their tackling, attend diligently their business, and perhaps take great contentment to consider how they proceed in their voyage. In the morning, or after a time, coming to measure what way they have made, what progress they have had, that they find that they are far behind where they were, instead of getting one step forward, fallen into a swift tide or a current that goes against them. It has frustrated all their labors, and rendered the wind in their cells almost useless. They have borne up somewhat against the stream, but they have made no progress. So is it with believers have a good gale of supplies of the Spirit from above. They attend to their duties diligently, pray constantly, hear attentively, and omit nothing that may carry them on their voyage towards eternity. But after a while, coming seriously to consider, by the examination of their hearts and ways, what progress as they have made, they find that all their assistance and duties have not been able to bear them up against some strong tide or current of indwelling sin. It has kept them indeed from being driven and split on rocks and shells. It has preserved them from gross, scandalous sins. Yet they have lost in their spiritual frame, or have gone backwards, and are entangled under many woeful spiritual decays. This is a notable evidence of the life of sin about which we are treating. Now, because the purpose of our discovering this power of sin is that we may be careful to obviate and prevent it in its operation. And because of all the effects it produces, there is none more dangerous or pernicious than what we last insisted on. Namely, that it prevails on many professors to a habitual spiritual declension from their former ways and attainments. Notwithstanding all the sweetness and excellence which their souls have found in them, I will therefore, as said, next consider by what ways and means, and through what assistance. It usually prevails in this way, so that we may be better instructed to watch against it.